This is The Guardian. After decades of delays and billions of dollars over budget, the James Webb Space Telescope finally launched in 2021. Decollage liftoff from a tropical rainforest to the edge of time itself, James Webb begins a voyage back to the birth of the universe. And since becoming operational late last year, it's been dazzling us with stunning images. Finally tonight, NASA is celebrating the first full year of the James Webb Space Telescope with a breathtaking new image of stars at the moment of their birth. But the James Webb Space Telescope hasn't just been taking awe-inspiring photographs. It's been making discoveries that are baffling scientists. One of the scientists I spoke to said it's bananas. It was completely sort of different from what they'd expected. So what have we learned from James Webb this year? And how is it transforming our understanding of the universe? From The Guardian, I'm Madeleine Finlay, and this is Science Weekly. Hannah Devlin, science correspondent for The Guardian. The James Webb Space Telescope has been in space for almost two years now, and I really can't believe how quickly that's gone. Time does fly when you're on astrological scales. So... Perhaps you can help us familiarise ourselves with JWST again. What do we need to know about this telescope? Okay, so this is a telescope that's in space to start with, as the name suggests. Um, And it's a partnership between NASA, the European Space Agency and the Canadian Space Agency. Um, And it's something that astronomers have been waiting for for decades. There's people who've been planning studies for it, um, you know, since the late 90s when it was first commissioned. And it's really been seen as the successor to the Hubble Space Telescope and which brought us all these spectacular images of the universe. If you've seen a picture of the Horsehead Nebula or, you know, any of those iconic images, it'll probably have been taken by Hubble. And the James Webb, it is taking things up a level. It's much bigger than Hubble. And it's also about 1.5 million kilometres away from the Earth and it's in orbit around the sun. And what that allows you to do is it, it takes it out of the sort of interference of the Earth's atmosphere, it's shaded from the sun by the Earth. So it's got this side that's incredibly cold and that allows it to pick up the faintest, most distant light from the very earliest stages of the universe. And it also allows it to capture details of distant planets in other um, solar systems that that we've never even been able to dream of being able to capture before. So there's been sort of all this anticipation. And I think it's fair to say that it really has delivered. I mean, even the people who've been planning these studies have been pretty blown away with the type of images and the data that they've been getting back. There have been so many stories from JWST's observations so far. And so I want to get into what it's been looking at. So let's start with the earliest, which also makes them the furthest away, these galaxies from the early universe. How far back, aka how far, has JWST managed to go? It's been able to pick up light from galaxies around 350 million years after the Big Bang, 13.7 billion years ago. 
So this is sort of the dawn of the universe, basically, when the very first galaxies were forming. And it's allowing astronomers to really test what they've put together in computer models. And now they're able to really look you know, the real thing and see whether it matches up. And, you know, there are some hints that maybe there are slight differences between what they'd expected to see and what's actually out there, which is, you know, it could really get into some of the biggest cosmological questions of, you know, how dark matter and dark energy were behaving at that point in time and how the first galaxies were formed as well, because that's still a bit of an open question. And these galaxies, some of the first in our universe, we think, are very intriguing as well, aren't they? I know they've been called universe breakers because their existence could potentially upend some of our current theories of cosmology. So what do we know about them? Cosmologists tend to think of galaxy formation as almost being, it's almost like a sort of snowball effect. So you start with some little pockets of, you know, areas that randomly end up a bit more dense than others in the very early universe. And we're just talking about dust and gas and stuff swirling around here. And then because those are little sort of gravitational dips almost, more stuff falls into those areas and then they snowball into a galaxy. But, you know, you'd imagine that if you followed that train of thought, the earliest galaxies would be really small. And then it would only be when more of them had pulled together that you'd get bigger galaxies. But what was really surprising in the James Webb observations is that they found galaxies around the size of the Milky Way, which is completely different from what you'd expect, or at least you'd only expect very few galaxies of that size at, at that point in time. And I think there's still a bit of an open question over whether these observations are really sort of going to upend our current theories. But there does feel like there's been a sort of building up of observations from that very early period that are a little bit mismatched with what the theories suggest. So there is this sort of excitement in the air that they could really be onto something and there could be a sort of big shift in thinking. So zooming forward to today or closer to the present time, one of the other purposes of the telescope is to study exoplanets, so planets that are outside our own solar system. And two months ago, the telescope discovered the actually named K218b. Why did this particular one excite some scientists? So one of the really exciting things that James Webb is able to do is not just look at the exoplanet and spot that it's there and measure its size, but also it can detect what chemicals are present in the atmosphere of these exoplanets. And that could indirectly give you clues to whether that planet might be habitable, whether it might have the sort of conditions that would favour life as we know it on Earth at least. And so there have been various different planets out there that have been targeted. And one of the most exciting ones to come back so far was this planet K218b, which had signs of a possible liquid ocean on the planet. And um, so they're not getting pictures of these planets. They're taking the spectra of the atmosphere and they're basically measuring the starlight as it's just being filtered through the atmosphere of the exoplanet and depending on what gases are in the atmosphere different bits of the starlight get absorbed so they're looking for basically missing bits of the starlight and then that's kind of telling them okay there's a bit of hydrogen there that's absorbed that bit of 
the spectrum. So on this planet, they discovered a balance of gases that so they found methane and carbon dioxide and sort of plugging those measurements into their models it hinted that the conditions where you'd get that particular balance it is likely to be when you've got an ocean, or at least there's some kind of hints that there could be an ocean. So chemical signatures that indicate water are a hint that there could be life on a planet. But what else would we be looking for? Often what astronomers or astrobiologists are looking for are signs that they've got what they call the big six elements that are related to life. And they're the things that we know are essential for life on Earth. So it's carbon, oxygen, hydrogen, nitrogen, phosphorus and sulphur. So that's one thing that they're looking for. And then they're also looking for sort of balances of gases where there's something a bit off that you wouldn't get just through geological processes like volcanoes or cloud systems, which could hint that there's some sort of biological process going on. There's something producing carbon dioxide or a different chemical process than what you would get just with rocks and sunlight and geology. Well, on that point, JWST turned up yet another mystery, something called Jupiter Mass Binary Objects or Jumbos, a name I can definitely get behind. And despite being planet-sized, we don't actually know what they are because in other ways they seem more like stars. So right now they're defying classification. Tell me more about that. Yeah, so this is a slightly different kind of observation and this is from team at ESA who they were inspired to look for these objects based on some observations they'd done with ground-based telescopes about a decade or so ago, where they were looking in nebula. So these are the sort of big clouds where stars are formed. And they found these very small objects that almost seemed to break the limit for how small you can get a star to be. Um, and so they decided to basically point James Webb in, in the same direction and ask that question, how small do these things go down? And so it was a really big surprise when they looked. They found these objects that are about the size of Jupiter. And in particular, they found pairs of these objects um, rotating about each other. And so this was really intriguing because, first of all, you shouldn't be getting kind of Jupiter-sized star-type things. Like, you sh stars shouldn't be able to form that that small. Uh, but the fact that you were getting pairs of them seems to rule out the fact, the idea that they're just a planet that's been, like, kicked out of orbit from its star and just found itself in this cloud, floating freely and not connected to anything. Because it feels unlikely, or at least this is what the astronomers said, and it kind of makes intuitive sense that you would get two of these things kicked out and then end up neatly orbiting each other. That sounds very exciting. And on the theme of strange worlds, and particularly worlds that, frankly, don't sound very habitable, last week you reported that the telescope had also revealed a planet where it rains sand. So talk me through that discovery and why it's been called the Candy Floss Planet. <laughs> yeah, so, so it's called the Candy Floss Planet because it's basically, I mean, I find it hard to imagine a fluffy planet, but one of the astronomers <laughs> said to me, this is one of the fluffiest planets out there. And it basically meant that it's very big, it's about the size of Jupiter, but weighs far less than Jupiter. So it's got much smaller mass. So it's got this really diffuse atmosphere. 
And that's made it a good target for James Webb because there's a lot more scope for getting measurements from that. So they detected that there was water vapour in its atmosphere. There was sulphur dioxide, which would give it a smell of burnt matches, basically that that smell you get when you light a match. And also um, silicates, which is basically what sand is made of. And through the measurements that they made, they could see that there were um, sort of peaks and troughs of this silicate signature coming and going, which they've deduced was because there were clouds in the atmosphere and not water vapor clouds, but clouds made of sand. And that on this planet, you'd have something like the water cycle on Earth, but with silicate sand instead. So you'd have these clouds of solid little sand particles that would be high up in the atmosphere and then they'd get dense enough that they'd start falling down and turn into sand vapor essentially sand gas so um yeah i mean it's just mad really to think about (laughs) (laughs) apparently they had envisaged that this was a possibility before beforehand but i think you know for the average person the idea that you have planets with sand clouds and you know there were other ones out there with where it could rain metal so yeah i think it's just a case of opening your imagination to the kind of whole range of weird exotic planets that could be out there hannah james webb is obviously astounding all of us you know it's amazing even the scientists who are going through all this data that's coming back But we're also getting just absolutely stunning images of our universe. And when I look at them, I find they give me a a real sense of awe and amazement, you know, actually in a time where that can feel hard to come by. And to me, that also seems like a really important part of this telescope. I completely agree. And I think that it's something that the scientists and any member of the public can share this sense of wonder at, you know, how big the universe is, how amazing it is, all the mysteries that are out there. The sense that it gives to you of you being this tiny speck in such a vast, wondrous universe. Um, yeah, shared sense of inspiration and awe, really. Um, as you said, it's not, not every piece of news can give you that. Well, Hannah, it's been so fascinating and I'm definitely going to open up my imagination to all the different incredible exoplanets that could be out there and these strange objects that we don't really know anything about. So thank you so much for coming on. Oh, a pleasure. (laughs) Thanks again to Hannah Devlin. You can keep up to date with her reporting on theguardian.com. And that's it for today. The producer was Josh and Chana. The sound design was by Tony Onachuku. And the executive producer is Ellie Bury. We'll be back on Tuesday. See you then. This is The Guardian.